You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Have you ever hit that point in a case where you just go ick? What is it about a case that makes you realize that this one hits a little bit differently than the other ones? What is it that truly makes your skin crawl? For Julie, I know that it's cases when children are involved, getting hurt, kidnapped, or of course murdered. That was a line in the sand for her. And for me, it's cases and situations similar to this one today. It's cases that involve grooming. Now, I'm sure grooming seems almost like an insignificant thing when you're someone like me who's researching and talking about killers and serial killers and all of the grotesque things that come up on this podcast, but grooming hits me on a different level. When you hear of cases where it's evident that an adult grooms and takes advantage of a child, those are the cases that hit on a different level. This week's case has a man at the center of it that seemed as though he knew how to manipulate everyone. And within his lifetime, he groomed two very young girls. Hello, my name is Lance, and welcome to episode 110 of Gone But Never Forgotten. From father and daughter, to husband and wife, to a murderous rampage. The story of Stephen Pladell. Stephen Pladell was born on April 6th of 1975 in Levittown, Nassau County, New York, to his mother, Grace Pladell. I can only assume that his father was not in the picture because I could not find any information at all on him. As a child, Stephen was often bullied by people and he was going to school in the 1980s, which was certainly a time when bullying was taking place and not a time where it was really focused on or brought up. People that knew Stephen when he was growing up said that he was bullied pretty consistently throughout his school life. In 1995, when Stephen was 20 years old, he met a girl online in a chat room named Alyssa, who was only 15 years old. Stephen, being an adult, entered into a grooming relationship with Alyssa. The two built a relationship, and it didn't take long for Stephen to travel from New York to San Antonio, Texas, where Alyssa lived, and the two started a sexual relationship. 
Then, not long after they first met in person, Alyssa would run away from home and go to New York with Stephen. At only 16 years old, Alyssa would become pregnant for the first time in her life with Stephen's child. She gave birth to a baby girl on January 29th of 1998, and they named her Denise. Things at home, however, were not good, according to Alyssa, and she said that Stephen was incredibly abusive with baby Denise. Alyssa said that Stephen inflicted torture on the baby, beating her and pinching her skin until she was bruised all over her body, and Alyssa said that he would even shove the baby's head underwater. Alyssa said that Stephen, quote, would do things like cover her mouth when she would cry. He pinched her all over her body and turned her black and blue a couple of times. Eventually, he said he couldn't stand the screaming and crying anymore, so he started placing her into a cooler or an ice chest. Sometimes he would put a blanket in there to keep a crack open, and sometimes he would shut it and wouldn't let me go back to open it. He would make me wait a few minutes until I could go back, and I'd open the cooler, and she would just be gasping for air, drenched in sweat, bruises on her. I would just scoop her up and shut the bedroom door so he couldn't bother me, and I would rock her back and forth and tell her how sorry I was for the life she was having." Unquote. Can you imagine... This is a incredibly young child. Denise was put up for adoption at only eight months old, so that tells you how young Denise was when she was being tortured by her own father. When it came across the quotes that Alyssa later shared about the things that Stephen had done, I was appalled. What I just read wasn't even the worst of it. Stephen was just... An absolute piece of crap. There is no other way to put that. Alyssa, even being as young as she was, knew that she needed to do whatever she could to try and help Denise to have a good life, and so she put Denise up for adoption to get her away from Stephen. As I said, Denise was put up for adoption when she was only eight months old, and she was adopted by a man named Anthony Fusco, who was an officer with the New York State Department of Corrections, and his wife, Kelly, who was a secretary for the town of Dover, New York's Land Use Department. When they adopted Denise, they changed her name to Katie Fusco, and she would be raised in Dover, New York. I've heard a lot of people take shots at Alyssa and say that she didn't do enough, and what comes next shows that she certainly didn't do enough for herself, but you can probably not even imagine what it was like to live with Stephen and to be in a relationship with Stephen. First of all, we know that he groomed Alyssa in the first place, and that their relationship was technically illegal in the beginning, but... If this man was okay with abusing a baby physically, imagine what he may have been doing to Alyssa physically, mentally, and emotionally. Her life had to be one lived in fear to one degree or another. 
I will touch on Alyssa later because there certainly was more that she should have and could have done in this case. But Alyssa had nobody in New York. She had run away from all of her friends and all of her family for Stephen. Her family had essentially cut off contact after she ran away with Stephen, and she didn't have any friends in New York that weren't Stephen's friends. She knew that the only way to save that baby's life was to get her away from Stephen, and even though Alyssa stayed, she did the right thing for Denise as a mom. In 2005, Stephen and Alyssa would get married, and they would move to Henrico, Virginia together, which is close to Richmond, Virginia. The two would actually have two more daughters together, believe it or not. You have to wonder what kind of power Stephen must have had over Alyssa to convince her that they should have more children after the way that he had treated Denise. For her part, Alyssa would later say that things with the other two girls had been okay at first. Stephen had not been abusing the girls. She did, however, say that Stephen's anger had continued to escalate at this time and that he was becoming more and more of a wild card. He would lash out at a moment's notice, and walls were smashed, and things were thrown and broken, and violence was seen by everyone inside of that home. To make a horrible one-two combo with the explosive anger, Stephen owned guns. He owned at least four or five guns at all times. We hear a lot in true crime about the descent into worse crimes, and Stephen certainly exhibited that descent. Alyssa said that there was a time when a cat ventured into the family garage while Stephen was working in the garage, and Stephen had literally beaten the cat to death with his bare hands and with tools, and then just discarded of the cat in the garbage that was in the garage. He said that he did it because... He didn't like cats. Stephen was very clearly not a pleasant man, and yet he seemed to be able to get whatever he wanted from people. You have to wonder how a man could be so creepy and evil and so charismatic at the same time. But that's something that, unfortunately, in true crime we do see far too often. In Dover, New York, Katie, who was formerly baby Denise, was growing up with a good life and seemed to be on the track to be a success story and the product of her mom knowing how to save her when she was just a baby. Katie grew up into a beautiful young woman who had the biggest heart that you could imagine. She was a vegan, and one of her passions was taking in and taking care of stray cats. As you can see, specifically within the world of cats, she literally seems to have become the antithesis of Stephen by not being around him. Katie seemed to have truly found herself when she was in high school. She was thoughtful, she was artistic, and she was incredibly aware of who she was and what she wanted to be and how she was going to get there. Her heart and her spirit were made of gold. Katie wanted to go to school after she graduated and get her degree in digital advertising. 
She had everything planned out for her career and for her life. Part of Katie's thirst for knowledge, as is often the case for adopted children, was her desire to find her biological parents and get to know them so that she could see where she came from and perhaps learn even more about herself. In August of 2015, Katie was able to track down Stephen and Alyssa on Facebook. The three of them would catch up in that way, and then she paid them a visit in January of 2016. Then, after she graduated from high school in June of 2016, very quickly after, she made the shocking decision to everyone, and she moved to Virginia to live with Stephen, Alyssa, and their other two daughters. Her sisters were roughly 8 and 12 years old at the time. Katie's adoptive parents were certainly not happy with her decision to move to Virginia, but they felt that since she was 18 years old, they needed to support her decision and let her make her own choices in life. They certainly weren't against her exploring her biological family, but they knew that Stephen and Alyssa's home was a lot different than their own in many different ways. When you take in all of the things that Katie was described as by those that she grew up with, you have to wonder why on earth she would make the decision in the first place to change her charted path here in a really major way. It isn't like she couldn't see that the grass likely wasn't greener on the other side of the fence here. Stephen and Alyssa had a vastly different life than the life that Katie had living with Anthony and Kelly. People have wondered over the years if there was already some kind of private relationship starting between Stephen and Katie at this time, and if they were having conversations without Alyssa, and that Alyssa wasn't privy to. Perhaps Stephen was telling Katie that she was adopted out because of her mother or other such nonsense to make himself look better to Katie. Whatever it was that drew Katie to Virginia, she and Stephen grew close quickly once she was there. You see, Alyssa was the only member of the household that worked to keep a roof over their heads and food on the tables. Stephen was essentially useless. So that left Katie and Stephen at home while Alyssa worked for them to continue to bond. Things around that time were already very rocky also for Alyssa and Stephen, and they not only had separate beds, but they also had separate bedrooms. Alyssa said that she was getting very close to leaving Stephen, but all of that was obviously put on hold when Katie came back into the picture because Alyssa didn't want to lose the opportunity to bond with her oldest daughter. Alyssa started to notice some things, though, about Stephen, and he was starting to change after Katie moved in. Alyssa said that Stephen shaved off his beard that he had had for quite some time, and he also started to grow his hair out long. She was slightly concerned and wondering what was going on, but she also figured that it might all be in her head and coincidental. She said that she also noticed that he started to wear different clothes and dress in a younger style than he had before Katie showed up. Then, Alyssa realized that she was on to something. 
About six weeks after Katie had moved into the house, Alyssa noticed that Stephen was sleeping in Katie's room on the floor. Alyssa said that she immediately confronted Stephen and Katie and told them that that was not appropriate. And Alyssa says that Stephen flew right off the handle. And he told her that it was none of her business. And then Stephen and Katie stormed out of the house together. Alyssa realized that things were really bad at this point, and likely she realized that what was happening was that Stephen was starting to groom his own biological daughter, Katie, in much the same way that he had groomed Alyssa when Alyssa was just 15 years old. Alyssa decided that she needed to get out, and she did, taking the other two daughters with her in November of 2016. Alyssa and Stephen would file for divorce, and then proceedings started in earnest. Katie decided to stay at the house with Stephen, and Stephen and Alyssa shared custody of the other two girls, and as such, the two sisters would come and stay with Stephen and Katie from time to time. On May 23rd of 2017, Alyssa was looking through one of her daughter's diaries when she came across information that would drive anyone to the point of insanity. She read that Stephen had told the girls that they were to stop calling Katie their older sister. He had told them to start referring to her as their stepmother. Alyssa would also read that not only was Katie pregnant, but that Stephen had told the girls that the baby was his. As you can imagine, Alyssa called Stephen, and she was absolutely livid at this point. She was point-blank with him, and she told him that she had come across something inside of the journal, and she wondered if she should be concerned about it. She asked Stephen if Katie was pregnant with his baby, and Stephen's response was to say, quote, I thought you already knew, unquote. Let that sink in. Alyssa said that she completely lost it on Stephen at this point, and that she asked him if that is why he was pushing for everything to finalize quickly within their divorce. She asked him if he was planning to find a way to marry Katie, his own biological daughter, and he told her that he was. He said that his mother knew, and she was on board, and he even said that Anthony and Kelly, Katie's adoptive parents, were aware that the two were going to get married as well. He said that Anthony and Kelly did not approve of the plan in the beginning, but he said that they had learned to accept it. That's really ominous to me when you talk about this man's charisma and charm and the way he seems to get what he wants. It's almost like he's saying, I convinced them. Immediately after Alyssa got off the phone with Stephen, she called the Henrico County Police and she filed a complaint about the incestuous relationship between Stephen and Katie. On May 31st, the police started an official investigation by interviewing Stephen and Alyssa's two youngest daughters, and they confirmed that everything in the journal was true and that Stephen and Katie slept in the same bed. The girls said that Stephen and Katie had told them that they had to keep everything a secret, though, because if they didn't, then their friends were going to make fun of them. So... 
Here we have Steven, a man who was bullied when he was a child, and so he knew what it was like to be subjected to abuse, and I'm sure that he knew on some level all of the ways that that affected him personally. And yet, here he is, threatening his own children, and telling them that their life will be a living hell if they tell anyone about the incestuous relationship between Steven and Katie. Stephen really didn't have a good bone in his body, I don't think. Stephen and Katie finally moved away, and they moved to North Carolina where they built an entirely new life with people who didn't know them. They acted openly like a couple, and nobody there knew that they were actually father and daughter. On July 20th, 2017, two months after the divorce was finalized between Alyssa and Stephen, Stephen and Katie got married in a lakeside ceremony in Parkton, Maryland. And no, incestuous marriages are not legal in Maryland. They lied on their marriage application and said, of course, that they were not related. The wedding was attended by Stephen's mom, Grace, and also by Anthony and Kelly, Katie's adoptive parents. There are actually photos of the five of them from the wedding that just turn your stomach. I will add them onto the YouTube video when it goes live next week. What on earth was going on here? How on earth could you attend the wedding of your adopted daughter as she joined in matrimony with the man who was her biological father? What could possess anyone to agree to this? And then on September 1st of 2017, Katie would give birth to Stephen's son and grandson, Bennett Plydell. I suppose that means that Bennett was simultaneously Katie's son and half-brother as well. This situation is beyond belief. The genetics, the legalities, the history. Katie was now quote-unquote married to the man who had tried to end her life before she had even been alive for one year. This is daddy issues and abuse and neglect and disgust and ugh, all of that at the same time. And then on November 19th, warrants went out for the arrests of Katie and Stephen Pladell. It would take until January 27th of 2018 for Stephen and Katie to be arrested, and they were charged with incest, adultery, and contributing to delinquency. While Stephen and Katie were in jail, Bennett, their son, was placed in the care of Stephen's mom, Grace. In court, the early defense was that Stephen and Katie had not known one another for the entirety of their lives, essentially, until they had met that first time, and that the love that they had fallen into was stronger than any bond that they were supposed to have as father and daughter. What? I, I don't think that's a thing. I don't think that you get to ignore the fact that you're made up of someone else's genetics just because you were adopted to get away from that person. Like, that defense is nauseating. 
Stephen and Katie would wind up being released on bail because they were deemed to not be a threat to society. The terms were, though, that Stephen and Katie were not allowed to see one another. Stephen at first was forced to stay in Virginia, not allowed to leave the state, and Katie moved back in with her adoptive parents, Anthony and Kelly, in New York. Eventually, Stephen was allowed to go to North Carolina, and he was staying just around the corner from his mom and his son, Bennett. Strangely, there were no restrictions placed on Stephen regarding seeing Bennett. On April 11th of 2018, a series of events would take place that would change many lives forever and unfortunately end many lives as well. Either on the evening of April 10th or earlier in the day on April 11th, Katie had told Stephen that she was done. She didn't want the life that they were living, and most of all, she didn't want their relationship to continue. Around 7 p.m. on April 11th, Stephen called his mom, Grace, and told her that he was going to come to the house and pick Bennett up. He said that he was going to take Bennett to New York so that Katie could see him, and he said that he was going to leave Bennett in New York with Katie. Believe it or not, Grace did let Bennett go with Stephen, something that was allowed. However, I have to wonder why she believed the rest of that story. She knew that Katie and Stephen were not allowed to see one another. Well, as I'm sure you already have figured out, all of that was a lie. Stephen took Bennett back to his home and he murdered that little seven-month-old baby. I don't think that it matters, but for the sake of the story, there are varying reports that Bennett died from a stabbing, a shooting, or strangulation. What matters is that this sick bastard was able to kill a young child that was his young child in some form or fashion. Stephen, though, was not finished there. He drove all night and covered the 600 miles between North Carolina and New York. Stephen parked his car at a liquor store that was across the street from Anthony and Kelly's home, and he waited there until he saw Anthony and Katie leave the house. Stephen was aware that Katie went every Tuesday and Thursday to Waterbury, Connecticut, where she would clean her grandmother's house twice a week. Stephen followed Anthony's truck, and then when Anthony stopped at a stop sign in New Milford, Connecticut, Stephen pulled up alongside the truck and opened fire, firing many shots into the vehicle before he sped off, leaving the scene. Inside of the car, 20-year-old Katie and 56-year-old Anthony had succumbed to their injuries after taking multiple shots to their heads and torsos, the gangland shooting being done by an AR-15 type of weapon. At 8.45 a.m., Stephen would call his mother, and he told her everything that he had done, and Grace immediately called 911 to report everything that Stephen said that he had done. I'm going to play that 911 call here. Listener discretion is advised. This includes details about Stephen killing Bennett. Carry 911, add us to the emergency. 
Yes. Um, uh, my son just called me, and uh, he told me he... Oh, my God. In North Carolina. Uh, he killed his, his baby, and he's in the house. Okay, you said that he told you he killed his baby. <laughs> okay, ma'am, listen to me. What's your name? Okay, tell me exactly what happened. Uh, he, he's, I, he's, he's not home. His wife broke up with him over the phone yesterday. And he told me, she's in New York, and he told me he was on his way. He called me last night and said he's on his way. He's going to bring the baby to her, and then he was coming back. And he just, he just, okay. he said he doesn't have, he killed his wife, he killed her father, and he, I can't even believe this is happening. Okay. And did this happen in Nightdale? Uh, no, the, 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 his wife and father are in New York. Okay, and, so the incident but, but actually. But he left, he left the baby dead when he left. Okay, where did, where did he leave the baby? Okay, he said it was in the... <laughs> What's your son's name? What's his last name? Same as mine. When did oh, this happen? He said he left last night. He called me, I forget, maybe about seven last night and said he was on his way to New York. He was going to bring to his wife and given to her, and then he'd be back. And and he called me this morning. I, I just got up the phone just a couple of minutes ago, and he told and I. Oh God! He told me to call the police that I shouldn't go over there. Okay, so the son is. Uh, so your son is not there. No, though the house is empty. Oh, he said he put a key under the front mat. To take a key to get into the house under the front mat. Did he say how oh, he did it, or what? No, he did? and I, I didn't ask him. I didn't ask him. I didn't want to know. Oh my God! He's such a wonderful little. Boy. Okay, hold, hold hold on just a second, okay? <laughs> okay. Hello. Okay, I'm still here. What I'm gonna do is I'm. I'm going to go ahead and get you over to Raleigh Communications, okay? Let me talk first when I call, okay, so I can kind of give them an idea of what was going on, and then I'm going to let you speak with a telecommunicator, okay? Nice. All right. Hold on for me, okay? Okay. Are you still with me? I'm here. Hey, this over in Cary, I have a lady wanting to report a possible homicide. At All right. And she states that she got a call from her son. Was it this morning? Yes. Uh, this morning, stating that her his wife had split up with him, and she was in New York, and that he uh, killed their left him upstairs at the residence. Just a moment, okay? <laughs>
I'm still here, okay? <laughs> okay. Do you know if he's still at home? No, he's not. After that call, Stephen would be found dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound inside of his minivan. He was found in Dover, New York at 9.15 a.m. As you can imagine, everyone went into cover-their-ass mode here. Everyone wanted to be the first to explain why Stephen had been allowed out on parole and why he had been allowed access to his son and even why Grace, of all people, had been given custody of Bennett. I suppose it is here that I'll point a finger at Alyssa, who I certainly agree was a victim in this case. A victim of Stephen, and certainly a victim of abuse that we may never know. However, the fact that she didn't ever report Stephen, or the things that Stephen had done to her, to the babies and more is at least partially the reason that Stephen was allowed out on parole. While Alyssa knew of the abuse and of the weapons and of the uncontrollable anger, she was evidently the only person that knew. The court system did not know. The police did not know. Everyone believed that they were releasing a man who was up on charges for incest, and not known for violent crimes. No matter how you look at things, if Alyssa had ever reported anything that Stephen had done, things might have turned out to be different in this case. But it also might not have changed anything. So I'll leave you to be the judge. One of the things that Alyssa would bring up later was the fact that it didn't make any sense that Bennett was placed into the care of Grace in the first place. Of course, the general goal is to place children with relatives, but Alyssa said, quote, I can understand they like to put children in the hands of relatives, but not Grace. She wouldn't have been able to stop him seeing the baby even if she wanted to. Steve may have found a way to get to him, but they could certainly have made things much more difficult on him. I think they could have helped to prevent some, if not all, of this. If anyone is brought up on charges of incest, they should never be allowed near minor children. They did not consider how sick a mind he had." Unquote. So yeah, those are certainly judgmental words from someone who does also foot some of the blame, in my opinion. There were certainly a lot of failings here across the board, and sadly, three lives were the, was the price that was paid. What I don't understand is why Bennett was not placed in the care of Katie when she was released on bail. It seems to me that Bennett would have been better off with his mom, especially at his very young age, who was not abusive. But I suppose that in the end, that may not be either here nor there. Regardless, this is a story that has a very clear villain in the form of Stephen. This was a man who groomed and abused Alyssa from a young age, and then groomed and abused Katie, his own daughter, from a young age. He was a man with a history of abuse and explosive anger, and he was the man who ultimately was to blame for pretty much everything that happened in his family, 
and he was the man who took the lives of three innocent people. This is also a story that brings up a lot of questions and conversation. So I would love it if you would join me in on social media and have a conversation with me and let's talk that all out and have a chat as a community. There are likely more questions than what I can cover here on the podcast, so let's discuss this one at length. Aside from that, all that's left is to say thank you. Thank you for always listening to the podcast and hanging out with me as we look at the sad and sometimes terrifying corners of the world. I hope that if you're within the sound of my voice, you are trying hard every day to be a part of the solution and be better. Also know that you are never alone and that if you're being abused or hurt by someone in any way, you should reach out and tell someone. Save a life. Maybe save your own life. But nobody deserves to live a life that is less than their full potential. Be blessed out there, and thank you one more time for listening to Gone But Never Forgotten.